Our first reading this morning will be from Genesis 12, 1 to 5, and that's in page 8. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make, you, I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people, had, people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Our next reading will be from Genesis 15, 1 to 21. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus? And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Sorry, out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and each three years old, along with a dove and young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him. Cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generations, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure." When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land. 
from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphites, Amorites, Canaanites, Canaanites, Gergeshites, and Jebusites. In my family, we used to do a secret Santa kind of thing at Christmas. And for a couple of years in a row, my brother-in-law drew me out of the hat. Now, unfortunately for me, he's not the world's best gift giver. In fact, some of his gifts are quite unusual, which is a polite way of saying that they were awful, of course. He's not a, a Christian, but one year he got me a really strange book on Genesis from the Bible. It was the whole book of Genesis in comic form, irreverently drawn by a non-Christian. Every single scene was graphically depicted. Now, that book's since been regifted or recycled, I can't quite remember. But I did read through it, and I was struck by two things as I read it. First, I was struck by just how awful humanity can be. And second, I was struck by just how much the great forefathers and and mothers of our faith were caught up in the mess of the world around them. Abraham, Sarah, Lot, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Judah, Joseph, all of them were thoroughly flawed people, which is quite different to what many of us are expecting when we open up the Bible. Often people, people expect that what you'll find is amazing role models, people of of strong character, upstanding moral leaders that we should imitate. But as my comic book showed, sometimes with violent pictures, sometimes with shady pictures, that idea is not right at all. Now, of course, you don't need a comic book like that to see this. Just by paying attention to what you're reading in the book of Genesis will show you the same thing. There are great moments in Genesis, great moments of of faith and obedience that are worth imitating, but mostly what we see is a flawed people struggling to believe God and struggling to obey God. And yet, in the midst of the struggle, we see a people who are being patiently and lovingly shaped by a holy God. We see a people in progress. Today, as Craig said, we start this new series looking at the second half of of the book of Genesis, 12 to 50. And in this second half, we see the family of Abraham and we're going to start with Abraham himself today. And Paul Harrington's going to join us for the next three weeks. He'll continue with Abraham for a couple of weeks and then move on to Isaac for his last week with us. That video summary that we just saw that brought us up to speed on on what's happened so far in Genesis, it it showed just how bad things in the world got before God intervenes. Like look in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, we read, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. If you read Genesis 1 to 10, those chapters, you'll notice that at every point that God answers humanity's evil by judging them, he then shows them mercy somehow at every point. So with Adam and Eve, when they sin, 
God judges them and sends them out of the garden. But then he shows them mercy by clothing them. When Cain kills his brother Abel, God judges Cain, but then he shows him mercy by putting a mark on him so that others won't kill him. With the flood, God judges the atrocities of the people, but he shows mercy to humanity by saving the lives of a small group. But when you get to chapter 11 in Genesis, things are different. The people decide to go against God's command to fill the earth and they arrogantly build a city to make a name for themselves. And so God judges them by confusing their language and scattering them. But we don't see him show the same kindness and mercy here. We don't see it until we turn the page and get to the chapter that we're starting to look at today, our chapter, Genesis 12. In Genesis 11, God, um, sorry, in Genesis 11, humanity wanted to make a name for themselves. That's what they were doing with, with the whole tower. They wanted to make a name for themselves independent of God. In Genesis 12, we read that God wants to make a name for humanity. And as we'll see, in some ways, he wants to do it independent of humanity. Have a look with me again at Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And notice what God promises him. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. That's so different to Genesis 11, isn't it? And we see why God wants to make Abram's name great. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's promise to Abram has three main parts to it. He promises land. He promises offspring. And God promises him blessing. But this is more than just God intervening in the life of one man. Because God promises Abram... Not just that he will be blessed, but that he would also be a blessing to all people. Humanity, as as we saw on its own, is is spiralling down deeper and deeper away from God and, and away from what's good for them. But God intervenes in one man's life and he promises to reverse the spiral, reverse the curse and to bless the entire world through him. Here... In Genesis 12, God is opening a whole new chapter for humanity. And the rest of the story of the Bible is how God brings about his blessing to the world through this man, Abram. But why does God give these promises to Abram? Why Abram? And um, as just pointed out to me, I should explain... Abram was his name before God changed it to Abraham. So Sarai gets changed to Sarah and Abram gets changed to Abraham. But at this point, he's Abram. But why why does God choose Abram? Who is he before God speaks to him? We don't really know. We've been told he's family tree in, in chapter 11. And if you read over that later, you'll see that there's nothing at all remarkable in it except that He's old and his wife is old, that's pointed out, and they've not been able to have kids. And we've been told that he'd set out to go to Canaan, to the promised land, 
but for some reason he'd stopped along the way and, and he delays till his father eventually dies. In some ways, it seems like Abram is a man that life has passed by. He hasn't got the kids he was hoping for. He's not in his homeland, and yet he's not in the land of opportunity that he set out for either. And it's clear that Abram has made some kind of response to God's call on his life, but he didn't leave his father's household, like he was told, and he didn't quite make it to the land that God had shown him. So why is God choosing to work through Abram? An old man without kids, who seems to be slow in listening to God's call on his life, a man who doesn't seem to stand out as being remarkable at all. As we'll see in this series again and again and again, this is almost always how God works. He, he takes those who seem unremarkable and he does something remarkable in them. What stands out here in Genesis 12 as remarkable is not Abram. What stands out as remarkable is God's promises to Abram. Look at how stark they are. First, they're stark in that God simply gives Abram these promises unaccompanied by anything else. He doesn't try and support them with proof or signs or arguments to make Abram believe. God just puts them out there as absolutes and doesn't feel the need to prove himself. And the second reason they're stark is because God doesn't make these promises conditional. He doesn't say to Abram, if you do this, then I'll do that. Yes, Abram has to leave the land and, and, and yes, he's called to respond to God. But God never makes these promises dependent on what Abram does. They're just statements about what God is going to do. At this great turning point, this intervention, where God starts to rescue back his world, God promises to act for humanity and through humanity, and yet in one sense, he promises to act independent of humanity. This is God's work. And God makes it clear that it's not dependent on remarkable humans at all. It's a work that's only dependent on him. But this is not just a work that God does around Abram. It's also a work that God does in Abram. In Genesis 12 to 15, we see Abram taking steps of faith all along the way. But they're faltering steps. So he starts out from Canaan, but he only makes it to Haran. He moves through the land when he gets there, setting up altars to God. But then there's a hiccup, a famine, and he leaves the land and sort of takes matters into his own hand. And in chapter 15, we reach a crisis point for Abram. His faith at this point is stretched to its absolute limits. It's been quite a while since God promised him children, and yet nothing's changed for him. And so he says to God, what can you give me since I remain childless? It's a low point. What can you possibly give me, God? Abram's faith is pushed to the absolute edge and he just doesn't think it's possible. But look at what God does in chapter 15, verse 5. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now, if you, and I, you or I did that tonight, went outside and, and sort of counted the stars, probably wouldn't be so impressive. 
And be like, one, two, three, four. Wait, that was Jetstar. <laughs> but you go, to the, you go to the Flinders Ranges, it's quite different. Or anywhere out, out of, outside of the city. Imagine this moment, standing there with God. Abram standing there with God. And God making these remarkable promises again. He doesn't give him extra reasons why Abram should believe him. But that doesn't mean that Abram doesn't have good reasons to believe God. He's standing there with the one who brought those stars into existence from nothing. Whose word from nothing created all of that. What God promises Abram is huge, but for God it's it's absolutely nothing. There's every reason for him to believe God. But there's no greater reason than the simple fact that it's God who is giving these promises to him. And Abram goes from doubt to belief. Verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. It's God's promise that drives Abram's belief. And God credits it. He counts it as righteousness. In other words, God considers this the right way to respond to him. Now this is a great moment in Abram's story. It's, It's a moment of great faith. But don't miss that it was a struggle. It was a huge struggle for Abram to have this faith. And actually the struggle continues. Because look at what comes next in verse 8. Even though Abram believes God, straight after this he still wants proof that he's going to inherit the land. Verse 8. Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? God's incredibly patient with Abram at this point. But the proof that he gives him is simply to formalise his promise. Have a look at the, the strange verses in verse 9, perhaps strange for us, not for them. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. God then reveals to Abraham that what he's promised is not going to come about immediately. God's going to stretch it out over hundreds of years. And then after explaining the plan for a bit, God gives Abram the proof that he wants. Verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And we're told what this is all about in verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. God is saying to Abram here, you can know for sure because I'm the one promising it. There's nothing more sure or more certain in in all this world than God's word, his promise. I mean, what could God give that would be more certain than his own promising to do it? Nothing. If God says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And here, God binds himself into a contract, a covenant with Abram. But did you notice the remarkable way that God does that? Normally, the way that these ancient covenants would work is that the animals would be cut up like this and both parties would walk between the animals. And they would do it to say that if they broke the covenant, this is what would happen to them. So an Old Testament scholar says, to walk between the carcasses is to submit oneself to the fate of the slaughtered animals as a penalty for covenant breaking. 
And you see an example of this in the Bible in Jeremiah 34, where God says, Those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. But who walks between the pieces in Genesis 15? Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. God walks through the pieces. That's what the firepot and the torch represents. And what's Abraham doing? He's just looking on. God is saying to Abraham, I'm going to do what I promised and I'm committing myself to do it no matter what. Can you see why this is remarkable? Think about that humanity that we saw described just before, that downward spiral. Every inclination of the human heart was evil all the time. And God is binding himself to these people. Absolutely covenanting himself to them. God binds himself to bring about his promises to Abram or to face the fate of those animals. For God to keep his covenant with Abram and his descendants, it meant, of course, that he was going to have to deal with their inability to leave evil behind. By binding himself to restore the world through Abram, God was at the same time binding himself to face the fate of covenant breakers on their behalf. God, he didn't choose Abram because he was remarkable. But God's promises to Abram and his work in Abram is remarkable. And this same work of God, it continues to this day. In Abram, we don't find the the perfect kind of human role model, but we do find the model of how God wants us to respond to him. The Apostle Paul, he says about Abram in Romans 4.24, he says the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. God promises us forgiveness and eternal life, and believing God is still the response that he wants from us. And when we have this belief, even if it's struggling like Abram's, still, at that time, God considers us righteous in his eyes from then on. Righteous, not because we're remarkable, holy, upright people, but righteous because Jesus takes our place. Jesus dies for our failure to keep God's covenant so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. And receiving that gift, that is the right way to respond to God. Some people, when you meet them and and when they open themselves up to you, they tell you that they feel completely ordinary and insignificant. They feel like they're one of the most unremarkable people in the world. That's some people. Then you meet other people and you come away feeling like they must think the opposite. They live like they most they they live like they think they're the most remarkable people in the world. Like everything is all about them. Now, it seems to me that most of us actually have times of living like both of these. You know, we move between the two and And sometimes, somehow, we even manage to do both at the same time. But God, he changes the way that we think about ourselves completely. 
we start to see that we're not extraordinary outside of our connection to him. We're not remarkable, independent of God. In fact, it's the complete opposite. But we also see that despite that, he doesn't treat us as insignificant. Instead, he makes us significant because he makes us significant to him. He promises us forgiveness and eternal life and he works in us to believe him that through Jesus they're ours. He's promised to us and his ongoing work in us. That's what's remarkable. But just like Abram, we don't see God's promises fulfilled overnight. We too have to wait. We know we're loved by God. We know what he's got in store for us. But we have to wait to see these promises fulfilled. And while we wait, just like Abram, God continues his remarkable work. Have you noticed that? Our belief in God, it's, it's our, our trust in him, it's a living thing, a growing thing. There are so many times in life where it's hard to trust God, those times when we can't see what God's doing, when he takes our life in a direction that just seems to us to be completely opposite to what he's promised us. But the response that God wants from us in those times is the same as what he wanted from Abram. It's still faith. It's still trust. It's still to believe his promises, which might sound misguided to some, and it would be except for this. Our trust, our faith, it doesn't flow from anything that we can tap into within our own character. It flows from tapping into God's character. We trust God because we know we have good reason to trust God. We trust God because of who we've seen him to be. Near where I live, there's a church, and and outside it, it's got a sign. And often those signs aren't so great. This church seems to get it right pretty often. And it says on that sign, you can trust a man who died for you. It's true. We won't always see in every situation what God's doing, but we've seen enough more than enough to know we can trust him. I was reading an article this week about some alumni from the Bible college that I went to. They were the class of 1968 and they were reflecting on the last 50 years at a kind of reunion thing. And one of them wrote, the highlights of my life tend to be the lowlights in which God has proved himself faithful. That's God's ongoing work, growing faith, his remarkable work. And another one wrote, it becomes obvious with every passing year that there is nothing as good as being loved by our great God and Saviour. I've heard you guys say similar. And again, that's God's ongoing work of growing our faith. Even in the hard times, God is growing our belief in him because that's the work that God wants to do in us. Is it the work that you want him to do in you? It's a beautiful thing. God's not working to create a response of feariness or a kind of economic rationalism, a cold calculating, yes, it's worth following Jesus. God is working in us even now so that we respond relationally. We trust him and he grows that trust, that belief. He grows that faith in us. Can you trust him? If you got home today 
and had a message found out you were made redundant at work, could you trust him? Or if you found out this week that you were diagnosed with a terrible sickness, can you trust him? Or something happens to someone that you love, can you trust him? We can. We've seen more than enough to know that we can. We can trust a God who's willing to face the cross for us, covenant breakers. And even though our trust wavers and we have our own moments of crisis like Abraham, we too are a people in progress. And God is more than capable of achieving his remarkable work in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a a remarkable God. Your work, your promises to us, people whose hearts are inclined against you, away from you. Lord, your promises to us, your binding of yourself to us to reverse the curse in this world, to reverse the mess, is remarkable. And Lord, the way that you have shown yourself in Christ at the cross and in his resurrection, the promises that you give to us through him to bring us to a world where all of this mess is undone forever is remarkable. And Lord, the work that you do in our lives ongoing to keep our faith alive and to keep it growing, even in the mess of this world, Lord, it's remarkable. And we pray, Lord, that we would see it more and more, that we would, like Abraham, grow in our faith, And Lord, that we would respond to you the way that you want us to, by trusting you more and more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.